The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Morning, Heritage Remnant. It wasn't the rapture, the rest are just wimps. Amen? It's Oregon, we drive in the snow. Amen? Amen. Amen. Or we have to pray for the others because they partied too much last night. Whatever the case may be, when they come in next week, the people that you don't see here, give them that look, like that fundamental Baptist judgment look when they come in next week and just be like... (laughs) Good to see you guys. Hey, a couple of announcements. Uh, Grab your Bibles, if you would, turn to Colossians chapter 1. That's where we'll be this morning. A couple of announcements. Uh, Today we are cleaning up our Christmas decorations, which pretty much means this. So um, if there are any lumberjacks in the congregation, we could use your help afterwards, taking lights down, getting the trees carried out. That would be a big help. Um, Is lunch provided for this? Aaron, where are you at? No lunch provided? No. We're not doing anything for you. We just want your help, and then we're giving you nothing, okay? So uh, we would love your help after that. But hanging out with Aaron is a blessing in and of itself. Amen? So uh, you'll want to do that. And then also, um, this year, it's a New Year kickoff, so this Wednesday night, our midweek service kicks back up. So we'll be continuing our Through the Bible series on Wednesday night. Um, Is Sam in here? Sam, what book are we on this week? What? What? Which one? (laughs) I'm just messing with you. Chronicles is where we'll be this week. So uh, make sure you come and join us if you would. Awana's program kicks back up as well this coming Wednesday night at 6.30. And then also there's one other thing that's going on um, January 2nd. So that's tomorrow in the hub. That's our offices here right across the way. Um, There's a uh, Dave Ramsey financial peace seminar that's starting out. Um, The first one is there's no obligation, there's no sign-up fee, there's nothing like that, correct, Tyler, for the one tomorrow. Um, Just come see what it's all about, and it will be a real, real blessing to you. If you have any questions, hey, Tyler, stand up for me, would you, real quick? Tyler right here will be around the Connect desk on the way. He is like a Dave Ramsey guru. He can tell you all about it. Make sure you touch base with Tyler at the Connect desk right after service. In the meantime, would you guys do me a favor? Grab your Bibles, and in honor of God's Word, will you stand with me, and let's look at Colossians chapter 1. Oh, but I forgot. If you don't have a Bible, just stick your hand up, wave it around. We'll make sure that you get one. There's someone in the back there that needs one, guys. Anyone else? couple down here, some over there. So if you need a Bible, just wave your hand nice and high. If you don't have a Bible, that's a gift to you. But we've used them for a while. You might want to wipe the cover down. Colossians, it's cold season. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to read, we're going to be in verse 21 through 23 today, but let's read um, beginning in verse 15 through verse 23. For he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we just come before you, Lord, and ask that your spirit would be in this place, that you would be our teacher, that your spirit, Lord, would teach us these spiritual things, for they are spiritually discerned. I pray, God, that you would awaken maybe affections for you that have fallen asleep, I pray, God, that you would awaken awareness of you and your goodness and your grace. I pray, God, that you would bring conviction to those who need it. I pray, God, you would bring more into your fold, adopt more children into your family, save more lost souls even through the word being declared. And we pray, God, that you would be glorified through all of it. 
So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. amen. You can have a seat. First sermon of 2017. This is like hope season, right? Hope, a new beginning. It's going to be all good. But I have bad news for you guys who did come. Um, you, you don't pay me to just say happy things all the time. Amen? And you shouldn't pay me to just say happy things all the time because you're big boys and girls. Amen? And sometimes we can take the hard things of the word. And the text that we're in today has some hard things for us to look at and to consider and be reminded of. So I want us to understand as verse 21 begins where it says, and you. This is Paul. He comes out of this hymn. We've been talking about this. He did this, this hymn, this poem in verses 15 through 20, talking about the gospel, talking about what God has done. And then he comes out of that. And it's like the song just ended that he quoted. And he was doing that, remember, to get their affections, to grab their attention, to get them to really lean in and listen this. So he quotes this song. And then his next words are, and now you. So who's this for? Answer would be me. Let's try that again. So who's this for? This is for you. This is for me. This is for us. Paul would lean in now saying, hey, having understood the reality of the gospel, which we will obviously get to even more in a minute, he's saying, and now you say me. So this is for us. It's hard words. It's words that aren't always uh, uh, easy to hear. Some people are offended by words such as this sometimes, but this is the, I can't imagine a better way to start 2017. I can't imagine a more loving thing that the Apostle Paul can do for us than to declare for us what is in this word. And the one thing we know, God is good, amen? God loves us, amen? And everything God says to us, he says to us because he wants good for us, amen? So let's lean in and see what the Lord would have to say. Here we are in the beginning, and again, remember, we talked about this on Christmas Eve, right? For the glory of the gospel or anything bright, it, it always shines brightest against a backdrop of darkness, correct? I mean, no one goes to look at Christmas lights in the daytime. Everybody goes to look at Christmas lights at the nighttime. And so too, Paul is constantly bringing us back to the reality of who we are apart from God, where we are apart from God, what life is like apart from God, before he brings in the reality of the gospel. So if we get about halfway in and you're getting really fed up with what I'm saying, just hang in there, it gets better. Amen? So here we are in chapter 1, verse 21. It starts out, and Paul says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now, Paul is talking to the church. He's speaking to Christians when he writes this, okay? Um, he's talking past tense. Everything he's about to say here is the story of the Christian people he's speaking to. He's telling them their story. Amen? So understand this, it's really important to understand, he's speaking to the church. We know this from the very beginning in verse 2 of chapter 1. He says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace. So he's talking to brothers and sisters in Christ. He's talking to Christians. And he says of them, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Now this builds on the backdrop of what we already know. And what is it that we already know? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, if you remember. We know this about Jesus, right? He's not just a good teacher, correct? He's not just a good rabbi. He's not just a great guy with a lot of great ideas. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He is Lord. He uses this hymn in verses 15 through 20 to talk about that. He's the one who created all things. He's the one who holds all things together. He's the one who has redeemed us by the blood of his cross. He's the one that died for our sins. He's the one that rose again from the grave. He's not just a teacher. He's God. And so if we don't have that in the background, the rest of it all falls apart. So it's important to understand, we're not talking about just another teacher, like a Gandhi we're talking about God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And then the other thing we know coming right out of what Paul has just told us is that everything that exists in the created order exists for a purpose outside of itself. Nothing in the created order exists for itself. Everything in the created order exists to point outside of itself specifically to point to Jesus Christ. We saw that in that text in verse 16. All things were created through him and for him. 
And when we went through this a few weeks ago, we talked about the reality of that we exist and are created to reflect the glory of God. And so the idea is this, we're not intended to just look at the sports star who in, in the football games that are going on even right now as they run across the goal line, they score the touchdown and they start to do their celebration and draw all that attention to themselves. There's something inherently broken in that because we were designed so that anything that we do only points to God. So if our worship stops at the running back that crosses the goal line and scores the touchdown, then we've missed the point. The idea is that God has created this person. God has given us the gift of this form of entertainment. God has given this man the ability to do the things that he does. And in all of those things, they point to something better. They're better than us. They play this sport better than us. Oh yeah, but you know what? They're nowhere near as, and it's to all point to Jesus Christ. The same with all of creation. Everything we look at. We're not intended to, to just go out into nature and glory in Crater Lake. As amazing as it is, it should speak something to us. The scriptures tell us that the heavens declare the glory of God. When we look into the stars in the sky, it's not supposed to stop with the stars. If it does, our worship has stopped too short. And the idea is that we look beyond these things to the creator who is behind them. So everything exists to point to Jesus Christ. Everything, say everything. I'm going to do this a lot today to make sure you're awake, just so you know. So everything exists to point us to Jesus. The problem is, is we have this thing in Romans 1 where Paul teaches us the reality is we have fallen in love with creature or creation rather than creator. And so our worship, once we've broken that fellowship from God, we've become alienated is what Paul says here in Colossians 1 verse 21. We have been alienated from God because our worship has separated. From the very beginning, when Adam and Eve decided not to give glory to God or depend on God or live for God, they wanted to be like God themselves. They set themselves up on that pedestal. And in that way, they became their own gods. I'll live for what I want. I'll fill my desires. I'll go after my happiness. And that fruit looks good to me to eat, so I will eat it because it, I don't care what God wants. I'm living for me. And so they became gods themselves. And begin worshiping that God by giving that God whatever it is that it wanted. And Paul says this is the story of humanity. That all of us, our, our worship of God has fallen short of what it's intended. And so we stop with things like gifts or money or things, items, whatever the, the point might be. And we have all failed to worship God in the way that we were intended to. And as a result, we end up in this sort of NASCAR-like pursuit of happiness. You know what I mean by that? I know this is Oregon. It's not North Carolina, so I don't know if NASCAR translates. But um, the idea is NASCAR in particular is always made fun of because you just turn left. And you just go in circles over and over and over for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. I've been to NASCAR races before. They're incredible. They're a ton of fun. But I've seen people as loud as those cars are, as um, just live as that entire environment is. I've seen people that are fervent NASCAR fans fall asleep in the middle of the races. Because at a certain point, like let's face it, at a certain point we just want to see the end and the crashes in between. Like that's just what happens. So NASCAR becomes sort of this thing where they just keep going round and round and round and round. And Paul shows us here, this is kind of the reality of what our life is. We kind of go on this circular thing where we're just constantly pursuing something that's never going to work. It's never going to take us anywhere. No matter how fast you go, no matter how far you pursue it, no matter how hard you charge after that thing that you want, you're still going to end up back in the same place again. And the issue is things that we pursue that are not designed to fulfill us and bring us the kind of happiness that we hope. So think of it this way. If everything in the created order is designed not for itself, but to point to God, yet we approach each of those different things expecting something from them for us rather than for what it is they're supposed to do, which is designed to point to God, we're always going to fall short. We're always going to find that we're let down. And so Paul tells us here in this, in this verse right here, in verse 21, he gives us this progression of how this sort of plays out. He says, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. It's sort of a progression. It's the same kind of thing that you see play out, you Bible students, if you want to go to Romans 1 and read through the progression that Paul shows, how, how we just kind of go in this spiral. 
And, and so it kind of goes like this. The first thing is we're alienated from God. We are separated from God by our refusal to honor him as God, worship him as God, recognize him as God, and do what we, along with all created order, are designed to do, and that is point to and bring glory to God. Once we sever that, once we set ourselves up as gods, once we chase other things for pleasure and fulfillment, instead of living for God, we are now alienated from him, and it leads to the next thing, which is hostile in mind. How is it that that works? Well, inevitably, when you put your hope or expectation on something to provide for you in a way that it's not designed and you end up let down, well, sooner or later, somebody's going to take the blame. And it's not us, so it's someone else, right? We'll blame them for what's going on in us. We'll blame, um, we'll become bitter, angry, resentful. We'll blame our spouses. We'll blame our jobs. But it'll be everyone else's problem or everyone else's fault why things in our life aren't going the way that we intend them to be. And so there's bitterness and there's angry and resentment. It's you. It's your fault. It's your fault. In the same way, Adam and Eve, it's the woman that you gave me right away. He's pointing fingers. And then the next step of that is doing evil deeds, Paul says. From alienation to hostile mind to doing evil deeds. Because sooner or later, if you believe that your boss is responsible for your unhappiness, and you're thinking and constantly in your mind that person's responsible for your unhappiness, things that you do are going to end up coming out of that. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The heart controls the springs of life. The things that are going on inside us are the things that end up playing out outside of us. So let's go through some examples of what we might talk about, like husbands and wives, for example. If a husband thinks that his wife exists to make him happy and he puts that sort of expectation on her, the reality is eventually, probably sooner rather than later, he's going to find himself incredibly disappointed no matter how amazing his wife may be. Because she's not designed to do that. She can't possibly live up to that expectation. She's designed to point to God. She's designed to be your helpmate that leads you in godliness, not your, um, your resource for satisfaction the rest of your life. And so here's what happens. You have guys that they get married, and things aren't working out real well, and they start to blame. So what happens? Hostility of mind comes. Bitterness, resentment. How does that play out? Well, it'll end up, you, you, you either end up looking at your spouse as the one who is now almost like your slave so that you can go find happiness everywhere else. I want, she will do this, she'll take care of this, she'll take care of this, and I'll go pursue happiness elsewhere. Or you'll ignore her completely. You'll feel like she's done nothing for me that she should deserve my attention or my affection, so I'm not going to do anything for her. Or bitterness or anger. Or you begin to look outside, so you go to places like pornography or things like that instead, looking for it. Looking for something somewhere else that's going to trigger that happiness response, that whole dopamine injection that goes on inside our minds when those things happen. You're looking for that somewhere else. And, and if your wife's not going to be the one to do it, then it's on you, right, to go get it. I mean, we only live once. Happiness this is what we're all about. And so you start to go and look for it in other places. And we'll think we're not hurting anybody. We're not, it's, it's not hurting anything. Nobody knows. She doesn't know. Well, then tell her. Oh, I wouldn't want to hurt her feelings. No, you're not, you're not living for her feelings. You're living for your feelings. You're living for your pleasure. You're living for your pursuit of joy. You have now become your own God. She failed you, so now it's all you, and you'll go somewhere else. And it happens, in all fairness, the other way too, as you guys know for sure. I mean, women get married to a man, they've been brought up with Disney fairy tales their whole life, and they find out that their husband's not exactly the Prince Charming that they thought that they were marrying. He's a little less George Clooney, a little more George of the Jungle. And so what happens? Bitterness, I'll fix him, I'll change him. I'll be angry and grumpy and I'll control and I'll point out everything he does wrong and try to make him change because he's not who I want him to be. A guy who was created in the image of God will reframe them and try to create them in our own image for what we think that they should be. And we'll keep revisiting romantic novels or any of those other kind of things to come up with ideas of what our husband should actually be like. F weak fantasies at best. Or we'll gossip or we'll tell our friends and throw them under the bus every chance we get and totally disrespect and, and make this guy look like just a bumbling idiot, which he may be. But you're responsible for your own reactions. And no husband will ever, ever 
be able to be God for you. They're supposed to fill a God-like role in your relationship, absolutely. To lead, yes, all of those things. But they're not God. There is only one God. Jesus is the head of the church, and even the marriage relationship is pointed to that. There is, there's no two heads. Any, you know, the old phrase, anything with two heads is a freak. But what ends up happening We put an expectation on someone, it falls through. We've been alienated from God. We're not going to God for what it is that we're supposed to go for. And so we're going to him and then it just starts to play out. There's others though, children, this is a big one. My kids are not fulfilling me the way that I thought. I thought once I had kids, I would be happy and they would just make me look good, eventually make lots of money so that I could retire and live off of them like they've been mooching off of me for 18 years. Like there, there are those sorts of expectations, but, but sometimes that just doesn't work out, right? There's problems. Usually, usually it's because they're just being kids, but we have our own failed things that we came out of through our own history. And so we're putting expectations on them that are based more on who we are and less on who they actually are. And so when they start to fail, when they start to become a constant frustration, when the joy you were looking for is not there, the fulfillment you thought was going to come isn't there, then what happens? Abuse, abandonment, I'll just forget these kids anyway. I get nothing from them. They're just a constant frustration. I'll go somewhere else for it. And so there's abandonment and abuse. This is how you end up with parents at Little League games that are screaming at the top of their lungs at a five, six, seven-year-old kid because he can't field well. This is how you get parents who are forcing their children to live out their own fantasies from their own failed childhood. I didn't get to play football and coach just cause, or in, in high school because coach just didn't like me. Otherwise, I'd be in the pros today. But my kid will make it. And so we'll force them. Or maybe it's even your own abandonment issues from your own dad. I know what that's like. And you end up finding yourself putting those sorts of emotions and those sorts of feelings on them. Is there any more terrible feeling in the world than those days when you realize you're talking to or treating your child in the same damaging, harmful way that you realize that your parent or someone before you did to you? Is there anything more heartbreaking than that? But that's what happens. That's where abuse comes from. It's where abandonment comes from. All of those things because it's about us. It's not about this kid. God forbid a four-year-old be four, right? It's about us. Well, I don't have kids. Do you have a job? How about work? My identity will be in my job. My work is what will make me happy. I went to school for all this. I am good at this. This is what I do. And then you get that one boss that's just not clicking. And you start to blame him for everything if he only understood. I'm I'm underpaid. I'm undervalued. I'm mistreated. The boss's son keeps getting promotions, not me. And in your mind, that bitterness starts. It goes from the alienation. You've been alienated from God and seeking what God is supposed to fulfill for you and that, that happiness, that joy, that fulfillment from him. You've alienated from that. Now you're becoming hostile in mind towards your employer because they're not giving you now what you think they should exist to do. They're not paying you what you think. They're not rewarding you what you want. And then it leads to evil deeds. I don't do evil deeds at work. Well, Start coming in a little bit later. Start surfing the internet a little bit more. Well, I'm not working all that hard, but you know what? He's really not paying me for a 40-hour week for what I'm actually able anyway. And so you start to maybe not work quite as hard. Maybe searching for other jobs while you're on the other one. Whatever the case may be. We end up looking for something out of that that it's not designed to produce for us. When it fails us, we keep going in these circles. Then we think the next job is going to be the thing that's going to fix it. It doesn't work out that way. Well, I'm unemployed. Okay, do you have friends? My friend wronged me. And what I need really is another friend because that friend's never going to be for me what I'm looking for in that friend. So I'll throw them under the bus. I'll embarrass them on social media, whatever the case may be. And I'll look for that from them instead. Maybe it's God, though. Like, maybe it's God. Maybe you've alienated yourself from God. And because all these other areas of your life are failing you, maybe it's God that you're bitter at. Maybe you grew up in a church similar to what I did that basically gave you a little bit more, um, oh, what's the word? A little more karma, a little less gospel. Like, if you just do this and do this and do this, read your Bible every morning, pray every morning, it will be smooth sailing on the way out here. And then when your life doesn't really work out that way, you're just mad at God. 
for, forget what the actual Bible says. You guys know, I mean, like when you read the Bible, the people that chose to follow God, it didn't go out. It didn't go super well for them very often, right? It tended to go dark for some of those brothers because God never promised us this smooth sailing and following him. What he promised us was himself. He promised us himself as we go through difficult times. Not that he would smooth out every road and every turn. But if we went to that kind of church or if we bought into that kind of theology, just do this, do this, do this, and everything will go well, and then it doesn't actually work out that way, well, then we can find bitterness at God. Hostility of mind towards God. It's his fault. And then that leads to evil deeds. How is that? Because you walk away from the faith and then you start influencing other people as well. You start teaching other people that, you know what, I've tried that Christianity thing. It doesn't work for me. It's baloney. And so you have... uh, I mean, there are millions of atheists all over the place that came out of quote-unquote bad church experiences that are just following the same pattern that Paul points out for us. This idea that we have been alienated from God, which leads to a hostility of mind, bitterness, anger, resentment, which then leads towards evil deeds. Now, here's what's so silly about this. In all of those cases, we're really, when you get down to it, we're really setting ourselves up as God but do you realize like how incredibly fleeting and silly that is? Like it just doesn't, it doesn't work that way, right? It just doesn't. There's, ha, you, you guys ever go through photos? Maybe some of you did this year as your family gathering. You bust out some old photos over the holidays and you're going through pictures. You ever go through pictures and you hit that one photo and everybody goes, who's that? And you have to actually flip the picture around. Young people, it's, they're not on computers. It's not on the back of your iPad. You, look on, you actually take these pictures and you flip it over and we would write who's on them and the date. Remember all that? You ever have to do that to figure out who someone is in a family photo before? It may be a generation or two ago, but you ever done that before? That's you down the road. Not that far from now. That's who we will all be. We are all a generation or two away from total extinction. We make terrible gods, fleeting, powerless, frustrating gods. And this is where we're all headed. This is why it's this cycle that just keeps going. It's like a way too long NASCAR race with way too many crashes. But there's good news. Amen? Good news. Look at the next verse. But he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Remember, in the verse previously, it was past tense. He was saying, this is who you were. Yeah, we have the tendencies. Yeah, we have the, the uh, common tendencies to fall back to some of those old practices, but it's not who we are anymore. We've now been adopted and our identity is not in our job or any of those other things. It's not in our wife. It's not in relationships. It's not in any of those things. Our identity is now in God. And he says, this is who you were, but now because of what Christ has done, he has reconciled in his body of flesh. This alienation that existed between us and God, for those that have put their faith in Christ, it doesn't exist anymore. The alienation is gone. There is no separation between you and God. God has come. Emmanuel is God with us. And so we've been restored to him. And it's it's the beauty of the gospel, despite our rebellion. Despite our alienation, despite the fact that we turned our back on God and set ourselves up as gods, God came to us anyway. He loved us too much to just simply let that spiral just keep going and going and going. He chose instead to inject himself into history, to do exactly what we couldn't do, to live the life that we couldn't possibly live. Then to go to the cross and experience the punishment that we deserve for that alienation. And it's, it's more than just the beatings. You know that, right? Like Christ was beaten. He was whipped. He was nailed. He was stabbed. Crown of thorns spit on all of those things. But I guarantee you on that day in heaven when we stand before him face to face, if you ask him what's the worst part, he would say it was the alienation. It was the fact that I was separated from God. He says in John 17, in his prayer, right before he goes to the cross, he talks on and on and on. Why am I here? To glorify you, to glorify you, to point to you. This is what we were all designed to do. And then when we go to the cross, all of our sin, all the blame for all that stuff that we've done, the stupid NASCAR circles round and round and round, all of that goes on Christ's shoulders. And he takes on the punishment, part of which was God turns his back on his own son. 
Christ experiences the result of the alienation from God on our behalf so that we don't have to. And then he rises from the dead to defeat sin and death, something we can't possibly do. And now he's ascended into heaven and he says, if you just put your faith in me, in who I am and on what I just did, trust that. Stop the pursuit. Stop going in circles. Stop all of this stuff. Put your faith in this and I have reconciled you now back to God. And it's not just like me and God are cool. God is my father now. Adopted brought in, into the family, not just part of the kingdom, his child. Amen? I know it's January 1, you guys were up late, but you're his child. Amen? That's an incredible gift. What an amazing, that is good news. Is that good news? That is incredible news. That this cycle can stop. I don't have to keep living for myself all the time. I don't have to put all my expectations on my boss for, well, I guess that's the board of the church. I don't have to look at you guys as like, oh, fulfill me. Um, I love you guys, but you're miserable gods. I don't have to put my expectation on my wife to make me happy. She doesn't have to do that for me. None of those things have to happen anymore because I have a good father, God himself, who has now reconciled the gap. He's brought me close to him and he's my source of joy. He's my protection. He's my provider. He's my God. And I'm his. And that's good news. Amen? But now the next verse, we get a little warning. And the next verse gets really scary for a whole lot of people, okay? So hang with me on it, but look what it says. If, uh, there's always an if, right? Such good news if you, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became minister. Now I want to tell you the problem that so many people have with this verse. They mess up when they're dealing with this verse. You don't read the whole thing. You only read the first half and you get discouraged and you bail. And the first half says, all these things he has reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if you indeed continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting, and you stop right there, not shifting, and you go, oh, I knew it. So I'm saved by grace, just a gift of God. I can't earn my salvation. All my hope is based on what Jesus did, and I'm in, but I'm only in as long as I keep pulling this stuff off. So I got saved by the work of Christ, but I stay saved by the work of Jeff. That's how this verse gets taught so many times. That's how this verse has been read so many times. This is one of those verses we would never put on a bumper sticker because we hate these verses. Because they make us doubt. You know why they make us doubt? Because we're back looking at ourselves again. We don't read the whole thing. This has been presented as God saved you, now don't blow it. God went through everything he did for you, now don't mess it up and make that in vain. Salvation belongs to the Lord and he's handed to you, but don't drop it or you will never, ever get in. Is that what the Bible teaches? Is that what scriptures overall seem to portray? You're saved as long as you don't mess up. I read where salvation belongs to the Lord and not us. This is the debate, the theologians out there, the debate over eternal salvation. Can you lose your salvation? Or are you once saved, always saved? I'll give you one guess which camp I'm in. (laughs) Once saved, always saved. And I'll show you why. Let's look at some verses. Psalm 2710. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. One of our terrible projectors isn't working, but this one right here is. So, father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Now, this is a poem. This is a song written in Psalms. So whenever you're reading the Psalms, you need to understand that this is something written with what you might call an artistic intent, that we're supposed to understand something. It's supposed to grab the emotions. So what are the emotions here? Though my father and mother have left me. What does that invoke? I mean, What's worse than that for a child? 
You ever seen a kid in a store when mom and dad happen to turn the corner and the kid doesn't see them and they think they've been abandoned and left? Or have you ever been that kid? It's terrifying. It's scary. It's, I'm alone. I will always be alone. That there's a fear that comes in this. And this statement is being written to address and to deal and to talk about that. And what does he say? Father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. The idea is if the worst thing that happens to you, that kind of abandonment happens, you are accepted by God. What else does the scripture say? John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will, what's the next word? Come on, say it like you, this is, this is good news, by the way, so say it like you like this. Okay, let's try that again. The word's never, just giving you a hint. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will, I will never cast out. If you've come to me, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to send you away. I'm not going to cast you out. You will be accepted by me. He says, John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What's he saying? I got you. But you know the phrase, well, no one can snatch us out of our hand, but I guess we could jump out or we could crawl out or we could leave of our own volition. And that opens up all sorts of other doors. People go into Hebrews 6. We'll touch on that in just a second. But the point of the verse is Jesus is saying, I've got you. So a salvation by God, of God, given to you, you're in his hand. You're, no, keep going. Romans 11. For the gifts and callings of God are what? Irrevocable. I'm not taking it back. I'm not taking away the gift that I've given to you, Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. I actually think this is my favorite verse for this. And here's why. In the verse we just read in Colossians, it says, if you indeed continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. In other words, not stumbling. If you continue in the faith and you do this and you're going, and then what does this text say? Who's the one who keeps us from stumbling? You? No, it says, now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Look at 1 John 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you can be pretty sure for a little while and then hope you don't lose it later, but you have it. Philippians 1.6, Paul wrote, we just studied this book. I am sure of this. He's sure. He's like, listen, I know this. I am not guessing. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So who began the work in us? Christ did. That's where salvation comes. He's the one who saves us. And he's saying, he's not going to leave you hanging. He's going to finish what he started. Hebrews 13.5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will, what's the word? Never leave you or forsake you. Say it again. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now people go, well, Hebrews 6 talks about, man, he was of the fold and is he of the fold anymore? And I really wish I even studied towards it. And we just don't have the time to dig into Hebrews 6. That might be a topical sermon. Jeremy's preaching next week. He can do it. But here's the idea. Hebrews 6 does not teach that people who were saved lost their salvation. Hebrews, te- Hebrews 6 says that everybody who says they're saved weren't actually saved in the beginning to begin with. And over time, it played out and they walked away. That over time, whether life got hard, whether they were the one who was saying, I want God, he's gonna, God is going to fix my life. God's going to be everything for me and he's going to make all my sadness go away and he's going to smooth out my road. And then when they found out that life isn't that way, there's a lot of people that as the heat turns up, they go, well, this didn't work out. So I'll go somewhere else. I'll worship me again. I'll go after that. I'll go after them. I'll go. This is my prayer about my father. Like I, I watched my dad be a deacon in the church for years, for years. And, and now doesn't even talk to his own son, abandoned his family, walked away. I mean, what is that? I am terrified that he is a perfect example of Hebrews 6. 
that he has walked away from a faith that he never actually owned in the first place. You know why? Because he grew up a preacher's kid. And so he learned how to act in church and he learned how to say the right thing and he learned how to do the right thing. He learned how to be churchy without ever understanding his own need for God in his own heart. And so at certain times through life, and I can look back so many times and see it just like I can in my own life, but so many times I can look back in my life and I can see things and I go, is that what he was pursuing there? Is that what that was about? And I pray for him that that's not true. I pray for him that that's not true. But here's what I know. The Bible absolutely does not teach that we are saved by our works. And the Bible does not teach that we are responsible for maintaining our salvation through our works. The Bible just doesn't teach. This is not what Paul's saying here. We're supposed to move beyond a performance-based idea of what Christianity looks like. Beyond performance and into presence. Being with him being in his presence, being accepted by him, loving him, being a child of God, making our identity him and not looking to self all the time. And if we look to self all the time, like most people who read this verse and stop at that word, and we'll get to the rest of it in a minute, they read this, oh, Jesus saved me, verse 23, if indeed I continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope. And then they go, well, have I shifted? Yeah, I've shifted. Yeah, I've had seasons where I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do. And I've had attitudes in my mind where I was hostile in mind towards my boss or towards my wife. And I've, I've done evil deeds towards this and this and this. And I've shifted. And now I'm reading this and it says, man, Jesus saved me if I continue. And you're looking for evidence of your salvation within your own heart based on your own works instead of, or your, this assurance instead of what Paul does continue. And what is it he actually says? Not shifting from the hope of Jeff's performance record. No, what's our hope? It's the gospel. It's this continually returning back to my hope is in Jesus. My hope is in Jesus. Yes, I blew it. Yes, I'm still hostile at mind at times. Yes, I've still done evil deeds, but my hope is in Jesus. My hope is in Jesus. My hope is in Jesus. And that's the thing that we stand on. Not our record, the record of Christ. Because when we go to heaven, it's not going to be our record of righteousness that gets us in. The Bible actually teaches us that all of our righteousness is filthy rags. But it'll be the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is our ticket into eternity. And folks, that's great news. For the life of me, I don't understand why anyone would argue that. That's great news. He started it and he'll finish it. Well, what about the stuff that we do in the meantime? If you keep your eyes on Jesus, if you keep your eyes on the gospel, if you keep standing on the gospel of Jesus Christ, I assure you, your affections will follow and so will the works. But there's a warning in this. And keep in mind, by the way, the context of the story here, the context Paul's writing to, he's writing to a church in Colossae that's getting invaded by outside teachings, which are Jewish teachers coming in and they're all saying to him, yeah, 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 you've been saved by Jesus, but you still need to do all these other things. You need, to, you need to now start doing all the Jewish customs and all the Jewish ceremonies. You need to be circumcised. You need to do all this other stuff too. Jesus alone is not enough. This is, this is what Paul's writing to when he's saying our hope is in the gospel. Our hope is not in ceremony. Our hope is not in performance. Our hope is not in our works. Our hope is in Jesus. And we are to stand on the reality that Jesus Christ has freely, by grace, given us salvation and reconciliation and he has adopted us and that we're his kid and a good father doesn't abandon his kid amen now that being said that being said there's a warning here there is fair warning here because the if does really exist in the text it's not meant to be glossed over and ignored there's an if so here's the idea Works alone never saves us. You cannot do enough good things to be saved. Does everybody understand that? Say amen. But, but there's a reverse progression. So before we had alienation from God, which leads to hostility of mind, which is an issue of the heart, which then leads to evil deeds. But there's a reverse of that as well. And that is Christ saves us. He gives us a new heart, which will inevitably lead to good deeds, not evil deeds. It's a very important 
parallel to understand. From alienation from God to hostility of mind, which doesn't speak just of our brain, but it's our heart. It's our thought processes. It's our decision making. It's our inclinations. A hostility of mind and then to evil deeds. The opposite of that is Christ has saved us. So instead of alienation, there's reconciliation. But then he's given us a new heart, which inevitably leads to good deeds. So here's the thing. We do not go, I've got to do enough things here to make sure that I stay saved. But to a person who has no track record of good deeds whatsoever, there's a huge, massive warning to you. If you are not stable and steadfast, if you have no fruit in your life, you need to understand, I do not apologize for causing someone in that position to doubt, or maybe a better word is to question their salvation. And when I say that all the time, I've taught this kind of stuff before and people have gotten grumpy with me. Usually those of us that grew up in the church forever, how rude, making me question my salvation. I'm telling you, it, it's probably the most loving thing anyone could do for you to say, hey, make sure. Paul does it all the time. Be sure you're in the faith. Make sure. Make sure you understand. And one of the ways the Bible teaches us to do that is to be able to look at the fruit that's in our life. So, so if you're a person who is still living for self, you're still living in that spiral all the time. You're living for self. You're hostile in mind. You have no fruit whatsoever. You don't love God. You don't love God's people. You don't love worshiping God. You don't have a desire to want to draw closer to God and learn more about God. Paul would say to you, you should be worried. You should stop and think. You should consider where you are. You should consider where your affections lie. You should consider what you've made God in your life. And you should look at how that's working out. And then think about the fact that you're a generation or two away from extinction. We are not saved by works, but the fruit in our life, it's it's an inevitable part of who we are. Look at James chapter two. It says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is, what's the word? Dead. Dead. Christ defeated death. So if the faith is dead, it doesn't just mean that, well, I have faith, I'm just not killing it right now. No, it means it's dead. It means there's no faith there to begin with. It means that the life of Christ does not live through you the way that it's intended to do. It means there's a problem. And there's something that we need to think about and we need to consider that. John Calvin said this, it is therefore faith alone which justifies. And yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Just as is the heat alone of the sun which warms the earth and yet in the sun it is not alone because it is constantly conjoined with light. This is the idea. We cannot do anything or enough any things to save us, amen? But those who have been saved, you will have fruit. There will be works that are just the natural byproduct of having a new heart, of the life of Christ and the Holy Spirit sealed in you, just being lived out of who you are. Because remember what the verses say, remember what the scriptures say. That the heart is the springs of life. Guard it carefully, it says. It says that from the abundance of the mouth, or excuse me, abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The idea is out of the inside of who we are, those are the things that end up naturally coming out. Are we nailing it all the time? No, not so, not at all. But there should be some sort of progression, some sort of evidence of the actual fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, somewhere in the life of the believer. And Paul makes no apologies here and in other places in the scripture where he's saying, hey, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Like with fear and trembling, be worried is what he's saying. Why? Because it's a big deal. We put so much hope in so many things to fulfill us and to make us happy, knowing that it's garbage, knowing that it can't last. And then what do we do? Today, January 1, and last night as people are at parties, we put hope in time. Seriously. Well, 2016 was terrible, but 2017, that's where it's at. It's just time. Today, everybody woke up just like we always do. It's just a day. No, there's snow. Stop it. 
right? It's just time. You're still the same you. You still have the same heart. Your spouse is still the same. Your job is still the same. All of those things, unless you said something stupid at a New Year's Eve party in front of one of your coworkers, all of those things are still the same. And so we, we expect all these things are going to change and that's what's going to make us happy. If it's not my wife, if it's not my spouse, if it's not my friend, if it's not my job, if it's not this, 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 I mean, if it's not God, well, it'll be this year. Time's going to, time will tell. No. And this might be the, the most loving thing we could talk about on January 1 of 2016 because the reality is there is no guarantee whatsoever that, that all of us are going to still be sitting here on January 1 of 2018. In fact, statistically speaking, some of you won't. Some of us won't. We just won't. What do all these people have in common? David Bowie, Alan Rickman, Glenn Fry, Abe Vigoda, Paul Kantner, Anthony Scalia, Harper Lee, George Kennedy, Nancy Reagan, Gary Shandling, Patty Duke, Merle Haggard, Doris Roberts, Prince, Muhammad Ali, Peter Schaefer, Gordie Howe, Pat Summit. Nate Thurman, Tim LaHaye, Gloria de Havilland, Arthur Miller, James Cronin, Gene Wilder, Phyllis Schlafly, Arnold Palmer, Shimon Perez, Leonard Cohen, Janet Reno, Leon Russell, Florence Henderson, John Glenn, Alan Thicke, Jaja Gabor, George Michael, Carrie Fisher, and Debbie Reynolds. What do they all have in common? They will not be at a service on January 1, 2017, or anywhere else because we all die. Unless Jesus comes and interrupts, this comes for all of us. This extinction comes for all of us. And Paul says, hey, know this stuff. Consider this stuff. Think about this stuff. Dwell on this stuff. Be sure about this stuff. Because it's a big deal. I really hope I'm not a prophet. But there's no guarantee you're making it home on the roads today. Where is your heart? Where is your faith? And if you're someone who goes, well, I, I look back in my life and I, I see no affections for God. I don't like worship. I don't want to learn about him. I hate Christians. I don't like Christian books. I hate Christian movies. Might be something to be said there in some places, but <laughs> I, I don't love Jesus. I'm after this, 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 and this. Then you should be concerned and you should do some, 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 uh, introspective analysis, shall we say. And you go, that's so rude. When I was six years old, I prayed a prayer. I know that. And you know how many people prayed a prayer at some point and thought that was their way in, and then they went from that moment on and lived the rest of their life with themselves as God instead of actual God, only to find out later that they were never saved in the first place. They just said some magic phrase. I know that's true because I baptize people with that story all the time. Who said, well, I grew up in the church, but I never knew the gospel. I grew up in the church, but I never loved Jesus. I grew up in the church. I prayed the prayer when I was six at camp because the fire and the music was right and all my buddies went. But where's the heart? How do I know where my heart is? Well, that's where fruit comes in. What is the overflow of your life? What does it look like? Are you loving people? Not perfectly, but are you growing in patience? Not perfectly. Praise God. That's mine. Listen to me in a hurry. No, just kidding. <laughs> but seriously, like, where are we in that? What is our heart? That's where God would have us. This is that time of year we, first of the year, we want to, New Year's resolutions, we want to take stock in our lives and, and set goals and all this stuff. And the only, the most important goal, the only goal that will really matter in the end is, are you an adopted child of God? Is Jesus Christ your Lord? That's the only one that matters. You know, well, I want to go back to the good news. Well, the good news is you're here. Most aren't today. And there's all sorts of reasons why you could have stayed home and none of us would have blamed you. But you're here. And this is the text we're on. We didn't pick this sermon out of a hat. This is just where we are. And so God has saw fit that you would be here this morning to hear this sermon, a sermon I didn't want to preach, that says to you, be sure. And the best news is the offer of salvation, the invitation to the gospel of Jesus Christ is still here and available. God loves you. He loves you. He gave everything for you. 
This whole Christmas thing we just did was all about that. And he knows that you're running in circles. And he knows that we've abandoned God. He knows that we've turned our back on God. That's why he came. And he desires that you stop. It's where the word repent, turn from. Don't be that guy anymore. Don't live for that anymore. Don't put your stock in that. Don't put all the expectations that you have to make you happy and fulfill you on everyone else all around you. Stop and turn to Jesus. Understand that he is God in the flesh, that he died for your sins, that your sins are real. We kind of got to know we have sins if we're going to repent for them, right? That's why the dark part's important. So know that he died for you. Know that he took that punishment for you. See how much he loves you. Understand and believe that. Confess that he is Lord. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Put your faith in him. And then begin to walk with the family of faith. Begin to walk with those who love God. Grow. It's, it's not some magic spell that you get saved and then boom, it's just amazing from that point on. It doesn't work that way. You grow. You learn. The Bible says it's being reborn when you become a Christian. And babies have to learn to walk. They have to learn to talk. They have to learn to feed themselves. All those things. And so you grow. But you're putting your hope in him, not in this, not in that, not in her, not in these things. You're putting your hope in him and you're saying, I have decided to follow you. I will make you my focus. I will look to you for my fulfillment. I will look to you for everything that I need in life. And I'm going to turn away from all of these things from now on. It's incredibly important. So I'm going to ask if you guys could all just bow your heads. And you can bring the lights down, guys, if you want. But let me tell you this. Please hear me. If you're hearing that, if you're feeling that guilt conviction on the inside, there's a couple of ways to respond to that. One is to be ticked at me. Okay. <laughs> it's not going to help you, but we can, I would love to talk with you about it. One of them is to turn to God. But even in that, there's a way of doing it that's going to do you more harm than good. This is not a time to relive camp. And to in this moment go, well, I was here and I felt convicted. And you know what I do? I really don't want to end up separated from God and go to hell and do all that stuff. So I'm going to pray the prayer today, but then I'm going to, I'm going to just walk out of here and just kind of keep living my life the way I've always been accustomed to doing it. Don't do that. It is better for you to say no than to do that. Because you're putting your hope in a thing not in Jesus. It's not a magic password to get in the kingdom. It's about a genuine recognition that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is God and that he died for your sins and that he is calling you to him. And so the best way to respond is to go to him, to confess your sin to him, to ask that his spirit would fill you, to ask that he would forgive you of your sin, that he would guide you, grow you, protect you, seal you, and that you would be securely planted in the hand from which no one could ever pluck you out. That's the response I pray you'll have. For the rest of us, for those whose faith is in Jesus, for those who can look back and go, yeah, I know I'm not perfect, but I am saved. My faith is in Jesus Christ. I've seen the work he's done in my life. I know who I am in Jesus. I am confident that I am saved. Praise God. God, then this is a time to go before him and say, Lord, draw me closer still. May I be closer to you and closer to that holiness you speak of in verse 23. This idea that, that we will be presented before you. May I be closer to that at the end of this year than I am now? May I lead others? May I be, Lord, faithful in all these areas of life, not putting ungodly expectations on my wife or my boss or my friends or my children. But Lord, will you teach me more and more and more how to put my hope and my trust 100% on you. Sam's just gonna strum here for just a couple minutes, a minute or so. Do some business with God for a minute. Way better than making your New Year's resolution list. God, will you hear our prayers? Will you point out sin? Will you convict, Lord, those who don't have you? 
May it never be said of us, Lord, like those terrifying words that you, Jesus, spoke yourself. That many on that day will say, Lord, Lord, to you, and you will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. That is terrifying, God. So, Lord, for those that are here that have not put their faith in you, may they draw close to you. I pray, God, that even right now they're praying, confessing sin, asking forgiveness, repenting from that life and turning to you, Jesus and that you would fill them with your spirit. You would give them that new heart. Affections for you, affections for your word, affections for worship, affections for your people. And that you would change them. And Lord, for those who are securely planted in your kingdom, God, we celebrate the grace of God in our lives. Because God, we are not Christians because we are amazing. We are Christians because you are amazing. You have saved us. You have rescued us. We were helpless and drowning, but you pulled us from the miry pit. You've set us to walk in high places. You've made us your children. It's an incredible miracle. So we choose in this time to worship you. Take just a couple of minutes to speak to God yourself and do some work with Jesus this morning.